Last week we were beginning our journey through the, the Gospel of Luke as we talked about this concept of face-to-face. And last week we looked at the temptation of Jesus as He began His earthly ministry. And we said, well, why was Jesus tested? Why did the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into the desert or the wilderness to be tempted? And we said there was really two reasons. First of all, to demonstrate His holiness and His worthiness to be our Savior. Jesus did what no one had ever been able to do. He withstood, resisted the temptations of the devil. That qualified Him to be our sacrifice and our Savior. And then we also said that Jesus faced our enemy to show us that there's a way out of our temptations. That there is indeed a way out of temptation. So that was last week's message. In today's text, Jesus takes the next big step in His ministry. In fact, this was such a monumental moment that Jesus actually spent the night in prayer before He took that next step in His ministry. Look with me in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what time He got there, nor does it say what time that He left the mountain the next morning. But we can surmise that probably Jesus was somewhere on that mountain praying, probably in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 hours. And the language of the New Testament would indicate he was not just on the mountain and prayed a while and slept a while, but the language would indicate he literally stayed awake and prayed all night long for perhaps somewhere between 8 to 10 hours. So what was of such monumental importance that it required him to spend an entire night praying? Well, we're told in verse 13, the Bible says, When morning came... He called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. When morning came, the Bible says he chose twelve, and he designated them, these men, as his apostles. So what exactly was he praying for through the night? There's two possibilities. There may be more than that, but two possibilities are these. First of all, it may be that Jesus was praying about guidance, who to choose. Out of all the people that were following him, who is it that God the Father wanted to be the apostles? So he could have been praying about who to choose. I think more likely though, he was praying for the ones that he had chosen that they would be faithful in the task he was about to give them. I think he spent all night praying for the ones that he had chosen because he knew what was ahead for them. He knew that he would be sending them out into the world to make disciples of all nations. He knew the size, the magnitude of that task. And so he was praying all night for them. Not only was he sending them out to the nations, but he also knew that this was in effect a call to martyrdom. You see, history records that all but one of them was killed for their testimony. All but one of them died for sharing their faith among the nations. John was the only one that was spared and he was severely persecuted and exiled to the tiny isle of Patmos. So if you look at the context of this verse, by the time we come to Luke chapter 6, three significant things are happening in the gospel of Luke and in the life and ministry of Jesus. The first one is this. Jesus had started attracting huge crowds of people. 
Huge crowds of people. Let me ask you a question. Do you know why there were 5,000 people uh, that Jesus fed? Because there were 5,000 people that were following Jesus. And in fact, that number more likely is probably at least 10,000 because that was only 5,000 men, the Bible says. So women and children could easily have been 10,000. Think of this crowd as large as 10,000 people coming to hear Jesus. He had enormous popularity. And why? Well, let me show you why. Look in chapter 5, verse 26. This was after Jesus performed a miracle, and it says in verse 26, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. They, wherever they went following Jesus, they saw remarkable things. They saw Him perform miracles. They saw Him heal people. They saw Him cast out demons. They saw Him help the injured. He, he was just an amazing teacher and leader. And thousands of people, the crowds were growing. Thousands of people were, were following Him at times. Now, the second significant thing, to give you the context, the second significant thing is some in the crowds became disciples of Jesus. Think of the large crowd of hundreds and sometimes even thousands. And out of that large crowd, some in the crowd became disciples of Jesus. A disciple was a learner. Someone who was taught by someone else. You see, in the first century, a student did not simply study a subject, but he followed a teacher. In the first century, they didn't read a book and study a subject. They would follow a teacher. They would follow a rabbi. So some of the crowd became disciples. Certainly if you had five or 10,000 people, they couldn't follow Jesus every day. They couldn't follow Jesus from town to town, village to village. There's no way a crowd that size could follow Jesus on a daily basis. But some of them did. They were disciples. Now some of these disciples, we're told in the Gospels, were personally enlisted by Jesus. Men like Peter and James and John and Matthew, we'll look at some of those stories in a moment. Some of them were were personally enlisted, and then probably many of them volunteered. So how many disciples were there? The Bible never tells us, but it does tell us this. I think it's in Luke chapter 10. It says that he sent out 70 disciples on a preaching tour. So we know he had at least 70. So that number was pretty large. Of He had the big crowd, and then out of that big crowd, there were some who followed him every day. There were some who wanted to learn from him, as many as 70, perhaps maybe 100, who knows. But they were disciples of Jesus. They were learners. They were followers. The third significant thing to set the context for our text was opposition to Jesus was developing. And that's what Luke is referring to when he uses these words in verse 12. He says, one of those days, which should make us ask, one of what days? One of those days is a reference that's referring back to the preceding events in Luke chapters 5 and 6. Luke describes this escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Let me just show you, walk you through chapter 5 and 6 real quickly. Let me just show you this escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. First of all, in verse 21, they opposed Jesus when he healed a paralytic and had the audacity to say, your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
So already their blood pressure is raising. Already they're very upset because in their mind, Jesus is speaking blasphemy when He says your sins are forgiven. And then in chapter 5, skip down to verse 30, they opposed Jesus because He was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 30, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to His disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you, if you are a religious man, why are you associating with sinners? And they were very opposed to Jesus. Then they opposed him when he permitted the disciples to pluck the heads of grain and to eat them on the Sabbath. Chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And watch this in verse 2. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Can you see what's happening here? Wherever Jesus goes, there was a group who were, who were his critic corner. Didn't matter what he did, didn't matter what he said, they were against him. They were looking for something to say against him. They were looking for ways to accuse him. They had made up their mind that they didn't like him and they wanted to oppose him. And it came to a point when we look in, verse, in chapter 6, verses 6 and following. Look what happens in this text. On another Sabbath, verse 6, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Watch verse 7. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You can almost feel the tension in the air. You can almost feel the hatred in the synagogue. That's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are watching Jesus intently to see what he would do on this Shabbat, this Sabbath. Skip down to verse 10. He looked around at them all and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now watch verse 11. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Mark is even more graphic in his account of the story. Mark in uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 6 says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That was the level of their hatred. They began to plot how they might kill Jesus. That's the context when Luke says in chapter 6 verse 12, One of those days... One of those days when the hostility and the hatred of Jesus had escalated to a murderous level. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and He spent the night praying to God. You see, Jesus knew that the cross was ahead of Him. He also knew that the opposition was growing. And He knew that there was, it wasn't going to be long until the opposition tried indeed to kill Him. He knew his time was growing short. And so he realized it's now time to prepare somebody or to prepare a group of people that I can hand this ministry off to. It was now time to choose a group of men that he could train to carry on his work. So we read the text, verse 12 and 13. One of those days, Jesus went up to the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. I want you to notice something in verse 13. Would you notice when morning came, he called his disciples, that group of 70 to 100, 
He called the disciples, and out of that group, he chose 12 of them that he designated as apostles. We're going to put it on the screen, but here's the visual. You have the big crowd, and then from that big crowd, he had these disciples, these followers, these learners. And from that group, Jesus then chose 12 to be his apostles. A disciple, of course, was someone who followed Jesus, but an apostle was one who was sent from Jesus. You see the difference? The disciples followed Jesus and learned from Him. The apostles were sent forth by Jesus as His delegates, as His ambassadors. The word apostle literally means sent out. So He chose twelve that He would one day send out on His behalf. Mark 3.14 says, He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach. Now, so here's what's happening. As Jesus begins the second half of his ministry, he begins to focus more on the apostles and less on the crowds. I'm not saying he never spoke to the crowds, but the focus of his attention became more on the twelve and less on the crowds because he was preparing them for what was ahead. And this was a remarkable moment for these twelve You need to realize that up until this point, Peter, James, John, Andrew, the rest of them, they were just part of the crowd. They were part of the disciples. Their faces were just like all the other faces in the crowd. They were learners like everyone else in the group. Up until that point, they were just learners, followers of Jesus. Until Christ selected them and designated them to be His apostles. Andrew, step forward. Simon, step forward. John, James, y'all come up here. And one by one, they had no idea what was coming that morning. One by one, they stood at the foot of the mountain and he called 12 of the disciples to step forward and become his apostles, his sent ones. Now, why 12? Why not 8? Why not 24? Well, the number 12 is filled with symbolic importance. Let me ask you a question. And those watching online, you can answer at home. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. It's not an accident that he chose 12 to be his apostles. There were 12 tribes in Israel. And in choosing 12 apostles, Jesus was in effect saying, these men represent a new covenant that God is making. Just like God worked through 12 men in the Old Testament to form the Old Covenant, now He was going to work through 12 men in the New Testament to form the New Covenant. And this continuity between the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, this continuity is actually going to be immortalized in heaven. I want to show you this in Scripture. Put your finger there in Luke. Go with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. John was writing and he says in verse 10, Revelation 21, verse 10, John says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Notice how he describes in verse 12. 
It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in heaven, there will be 12 gates. And on those gates will be the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice something else. Verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Immortalized forever in heaven will be the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundation, and that's significant, we'll come back to it, the foundation of the walls, the foundation will have the names of the 12 apostles. Now, with that as our context, I want to look at Luke chapter 6, look at the lives of these 12 men, and make two applications for your life and mine. Here's the first one. Jesus uses ordinary people to do His extraordinary work. When you study the list of the apostles, they were perfectly ordinary in every way. When you study the the list of the twelve, they were simple, ordinary, working class men. I can't stress that to you enough. They were simple, ordinary, working class men. Not one of them was known for the natural talents. Not one of them was known for their intellectual abilities. In fact, on more than one occasion, Jesus said to them, are you so slow of learning that you still don't get this? Why are you struggling with this? Not one of them was known for their intellectual abilities. In fact, as one writer said, he seems to have deliberately chosen men who were notable only for their ordinariness. In fact, that's really what the Bible says in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 or verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were amazed, they were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. See, the twelve were like the rest of us. They were selected from the unworthy and the unqualified. Do you fit that group? I know I sure do. They were part of the unworthy and the unqualified, and those are the people that Jesus chose as His apostles. Somebody said they were hopelessly human and remarkably unremarkable. Now look at the text, and let's just read about them. Look at the list. Verse 13, When morning came, He called His disciples to Him, and He chose twelve of them, whom He also designated apostles. Simon, whom He named Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. It's interesting when you look at this list, and by the way, there's four lists in the New Testament. Three of them are in the Gospels, and one's in the book of Acts, chapter 1. But when you look at all four lists, it's interesting that Peter is always at the head of the list. Peter apparently was the leader and the spokesman He's always the first name on the list. Always. All four places in the New Testament. Guess who's always on the the last person on the list? Judas Iscariot. And it's interesting how Luke describes him. Judas Iscariot, comma, who became a traitor. In other words, he didn't start out that way. He started out like a faithful follower like all the other ones. He was part of that faithful follower group. He was one of those chosen by Jesus. And he started out like a regular disciple, an apostle. He became a traitor. Now, as you look at this list, you find some interesting things. First of all, there are two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John. 
And those two sets of brothers apparently kind of grew up with one another. They worked together. They shared a fishing business together. These two brothers were, were fishermen by trade. Fishermen in that day, they were a pretty rough group. This is not a highly educated group. These are hardworking, salt-of-the-earth kind of guys. And, and did you notice that when you read through the list, there's two Simons, and there's two Jameses, and there's two Judases? How would you like to be that other Judas? You know, later, after everything settled down, and death, burial, resurrection, all that, and, and you, you, you introduce yourself, hey, I'm Judas, and everybody kind of looks at you with that, no, I'm the other Judas. That's got to be a little bit confusing, right? There's two Simons. Every time he said Simon, two guys turn around. When he said James, two guys turn around. When he said Judas, two guys looked at him. It must have been confusing. I know when Jonathan was in Phoenix working at that church, and their media department had three Jonathans in the media department. You know how they solved it? They called him first, second, and third John. Jesus did something, quite, uh, some, something kind of similar because he gave some of them nicknames. Simon, he called Peter. Matthew was also called Levi. James and John were called Sons of Thunder. He gave them a, a nickname. So it's interesting how all, this works, how all that worked out. It's also interesting to note who he did not choose. You read the list. Hey, who he did not choose. He did not choose a scribe. He did not choose a Pharisee. He did not choose a priest or a rabbi. Not one of them that Jesus chose were from the religious establishment. Not one. Instead, Jesus chose men who were not theologically trained, four or five fishermen, tax collector, political activist, and other common men. He just chose regular ordinary folks. And we tend to think that, you and I probably tend to think that we're a bunch of nobodies. And on a bad day, you may think of yourself as a worthless nobody. Can I remind you that left to ourselves, that may be true. But worthless nobodies are the kind of people God uses because really in, that's the kind of people, the only kind of people he's got to work with. We're all a bunch of worthless nobodies. You see, it's not the man or the woman that makes the difference. It is the gospel and the truth and the Spirit of God that's in that man or woman that makes the difference in their lives. Although they were common men, theirs was an uncommon calling. I don't know if you've thought about the role that they played. This uncommon calling that these common people had. God would use these 12 men to literally, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to birth the New Testament church. As they preach the gospel, God used these men to birth the New Testament church. Not only that, God spoke to and through these men and used them to teach doctrine to the church. In fact, in Luke uh, or in Acts 2.42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, the New Testament believers, they, all, they didn't have this book that we have. They had just the Old Testament, and they didn't have this New Testament doctrine. And so the apostles were gifted by God, trained by God, and they shared the doctrine that they learned from Jesus. Not only that, the New Testament that you have in your hands today, the New Testament that you're reading, was written, all of it, by either an apostle or an acquaintance of an apostle. Not only that, their role was so pivotal and so foundational. 
That in a very real sense, they are the foundation of the Christian church. In fact, in Ephesians 2.20, it talks about built that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Ordinary people. Ordinary people like you and me became the instruments by which the message of Jesus was carried to the ends of the earth. And because of the scripture they wrote, they still speak to us even today. Jesus uses ordinary people to do his extraordinary work. And quickly let me say this. Number two, Jesus uses a variety of people to carry on his work. I really like this part of the message that Jesus uses a variety of people to carry on his work. Have you noticed that Mount Airy and for any church for that matter, but have you noticed at Mount Airy there's a variety of people here? All kinds of ages, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of financial places financially, all, all kinds of educational uh, differences. You live in different places, you dress differently. There's just all, we're just so different. We're a diverse group. So were the twelve. In fact, let me share with you a little bit how diverse they were. I told you about the four that were fishermen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, um, Matthew, Andrew, and Peter, and Matthew, let's try again, Andrew and Peter, James and John, the four fishermen, probably had been friends for a long time. They probably were very close. They were partners in the fishing business. They, they, they were probably real, real tight-knit. But then you have somebody like Matthew. Matthew was one of the twelve chosen by Jesus. Matthew, the Bible says, was a tax collector. Now let me tell you what a tax collector was. Tax collector was considered to be the scum of the earth because they collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government. They, though he was a Jew, he was taking money from his fellow Jewish uh, brothers. He was extorting money from them on behalf of the Roman government. Therefore, he was hated, 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 hated. And then let me tell you about another guy that's, on the group, that's in the group. His name was Simon the Zealot. You know why they called him Simon the Zealot? Because the Zealots were a group of people who believed that the government of Rome should be overthrown, and, and preferably by force. And so many of the Zealots carried a little dagger in their sleeve. And whenever they came upon a tax collector who was collecting money for Rome, or they came upon a soldier who was by himself, they would walk up behind him and stick that dagger in his back. Because they felt like they were doing God a favor by freeing their land from Roman oppression. Now here's my question. How could Simon and Matthew be part of the same group? How could Simon and Matthew, Simon the tax collector, I'm, Simon the, the um, zealot, Matthew the tax collector, how could they sit down together? How could they sit down side by side? It is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the Lord Jesus can change a life. And they all had different personalities too, by the way. Peter was a guy, Peter was so eager to say anything. You never knew what Peter was going to say, and I'm convinced Peter didn't know sometimes what he was going to say. Peter was just aggressive and bold and, and outspoken. You just never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. I, I had a similar experience not too long ago. I was... Uh, at a restaurant. It was actually on Christmas Eve. I was with my family after the Christmas Eve services, and we had our grandson Sawyer. He's just the cutest thing. I don't know if you've seen Sawyer, but he really is cute, and, and he was kind of rambunctious, so I was carrying him around the restaurant, you know. We were just 
keeping him happy, caring for him. And it, I'd go around the restaurant, and everybody, oh, look at that. Oh, he's cute. Oh, how old is he? Everybody was just looking at Sawyer. There was this elderly lady who got up and followed me. I'm this, my hand in the air, this happened. There was an elderly lady who got up and followed me. And she said to me, I, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure how to tell you this, but you almost look old enough to be that child's grandfather. I wasn't sure how to take that. I, I, kept, I, I kept standing there thinking, why did she say that? I mean, does she really think I, I'm young enough to be his daddy? I kind of felt good about that for a minute. But, but then afterwards, just like, why did she say that? People probably said that all the time about Peter. Why did he say that? But Peter was an apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. He just never knew what he was going to say. He always opened his mouth and inserted his foot. That was Peter. All kinds of different personalities on this team. Peter, and then you have James and John. You know, James and John were so, um, what's the word, volatile? That Jesus called them sons of thunder. I want to tell you something. When Jesus gives you a nickname like sons of thunder, you've earned it. Sons of, they apparently had a short fuse and apparently didn't have much of a filter between ear and ear. Whatever they thought came out of their mouth, they said what they thought, and most of the time apparently they had a temper that was pretty quick. And Jesus called them sons of thunder. And then you have somebody like Nathaniel. Nathaniel was so quick to believe. You read the Gospels when he heard about Jesus. He, at first he was hesitant because he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But as soon as he met Jesus, as soon as Jesus responded to him. He was quick to believe. That was Nathaniel. Then you have someone like, someone like Thomas. Thomas was a skeptic, a skeptic and a doubter. Thomas just had this problem believing. Faith came hard for Thomas. Faith came easy for Nathaniel, but faith came hard for Thomas. And then you have someone like Philip, always questioning things. Philip was the one who tried to figure it out, wasn't sure how Jesus was going to work everything out. How in the world are you going to feed these 5,000? He, he was always questioning things. They had very different personalities, but watch this. Those at home, make sure you get this. Very different personalities. Here's the one thing they had in common. Don't miss it. Here was the one thing they had in common. The one thing that bound them together was that they were all followers of Jesus. And well, here's what I mean by that. They, had all, they all had a willingness to obey and follow Him completely. Different backgrounds, different personalities, different people. And yet they all had that one thing in common. This willingness to obey and follow Jesus completely. Let me show you this in Scripture. Matthew chapter 5. Just give you one or two examples. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 4. Jesus is speaking by the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Lake of Gennesaret in verse 1. He borrows the boat of Simon in order to speak to the crowd. And it says in verse 4, watch this. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, what's that next word, church? Talk to him. Simon answered, what do you, how do you refer to him? Master. That's an important word, master. He didn't say rabbi. He didn't say teacher. He referred to him as 
Master. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, not because I want to, not because I believe it'll work, not because I think it's a good idea, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. You know the story, but skip down to verse 6 and following. When they had done so, they, were, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he, he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Now watch what happens. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. Watch verse 11. Look at verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Can I tell you how that group that was so different, how they came together, the one thing they all had in common was this. They all had that moment, all 12 of them, when they left everything and followed him. You can see it again in the story of Matthew. We won't take the time to read it, but Matthew's, uh, he's called Levi, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus said, follow me. And it says in verse 28, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. That's the thing that brought them together. That's the thing that made them a unit, that made them a team. When the disciples came face to face with Jesus, they recognized his authority over their lives. And they willingly obeyed Him. They willingly surrendered everything to Him. Ladies and gentlemen, when you and I live under the authority of Jesus Christ, that's when we are true followers of Him. And the thing that brings us together, we're different ages, we're from different places, we're from different parts of the country, we've we got all kinds of differences, different personalities. The thing that brings us together is that we too have come to the point in our lives, hopefully, where we have said, Jesus Christ is my Lord, my Savior, my Master, and I am a follower of Jesus. That's what brings us together as a church. That's what makes us one. You see, there is strength in surrender. And so my question to you today is simply this. Have you made Jesus the absolute Lord of everything in your life? Oswald Chambers said this. He said, the weakest saint can experience the power of the Son of God once he is willing to let go. The weakest saint can experience the power of God. Once he's willing to let go. And we have to keep letting go. And keep letting go. We have to live out that commitment. Of being a follower of Jesus. And as we live out that commitment of being a follower of Jesus. And every day we're letting go. Eventually, our lives are shaped in such a way He can use us in a way we never dreamed possible. I'm convinced that when Peter surrendered everything that he had and walked away from it and followed Jesus, I'm convinced that he didn't have a clue what lay in store for him. I don't think Jesus whispered in his ear, I got something really big in mind for you. 
Just follow me. I got something really big in store for you. He said, follow me. Because he made that, that moment of surrender, that decision to surrender, that positioned him to one day be chosen as an apostle. He didn't know that back then. Back then, all he knew was, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to surrender to Him. Willingly follow. Willingly surrender. Willingly let go. Just see. Just see what God might do with your life. Because we're all a bunch of ordinary nobodies. That's the kind of people He likes to work with. Let me pray with you about that. Have you made Jesus the absolute Lord of everything in your life? The absolute Lord of everything in your life. Today you can do that right here. Those watching online, those watching at home, you can make Jesus the Lord of your life. Surrendering everything to Him. Some of you need to do that for the very first time. For the very first time you need to Ask Jesus to be Lord of your life. Master over your life. You admit that you're a sinner. Believe Christ died on the cross in your place for your sin. And surrender your life to Him. Asking Him to come into your life. And to be your Lord and your Savior. You can do that right now. Right where you are. Then some of you would say. Pastor I know that I'm saved. I'm sure of that. But I'm also sure that right now. There's things that have gotten in the way. Of following Jesus. It was a day when I was absolutely surrendered. It was a day when I I didn't hold back. But those days are in the past. And I want them to be in my future now again. Would you just simply say, Lord Jesus? I'm going to let go. I'm going to ask you to, to work in my life in a new way. As I surrender everything I am to you. Father, in the name of Jesus, may today be a day where we see you do things only you can do. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.